Yo, yo, welcome to Audio Evidence. I'm your host, Ignacio Palmieri, and thank you for tuning in. Volume 5 honors Freedom Fighters Malcolm X and Yuri Kochiyama, who were both born on the auspicious date of May 19th. To preface the audio clips you'll be hearing, I need to provide some initial context. I'm of the opinion that many people, whether they're considered nationalists, capitalists, communists, socialists, integrationists, or segregationists, all seem to forget the version of Malcolm X when he returned from his travels abroad in the mid-1960s, following his split with the Nation of Islam. I believe that after visiting the holy city of Mecca, Malcolm developed a more holistic worldview both religiously and politically, which added new dimensions to a leading public figure who many had already feared. It is a great disservice to Malcolm's legacy to discount how he evolved after meeting with many world leaders in Africa and of his era during his travels and how those interactions shifted his consciousness. This episode aims to highlight the audio evidence of Malcolm X, who is developing a more well-rounded approach to his political philosophies. The first clip is of Malcolm after recently returning from his international travels. It is then followed by Malcolm discussing the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution, followed by a recording of Yuri Kochiyama during an interview with host Kilu Niyasha on the show Freedom is a Constant Struggle, which aired on SF Live on May 16, 2008. Let's take a listen. Malcolm X. I think a lot of people confused by the new Arabic name, El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz. This is always, I've always uh, had the name on my passport, Malik uh, El-Shabazz, only I only used it in the Muslim world. Well, Hajj is a title that is given to any Muslim who makes the pilgrimage to Mecca during the official Hajj season. Well, are you, will you now use Shabazz and drop X? I'll probably continue to use Malcolm X because, and I'll probably use it as long as the situation that produced it exists. <laughs> we, you don't feel, you don't feel that Shabazz takes the place of X. Uh, uh, my going to Mecca and going into the Muslim world, into the African world, and being recognized and accepted as a Muslim and as a brother uh, may solve the problem for me personally. But I uh, personally feel that my personal problem is never solved as long as the problem is not solved for all of our people in this country. So I remain Malcolm X as long as there is a need to protest and struggle and fight against the injustices that our people are involved in in this country. Are you prepared to go into the United Nations at this point and ask that charges be brought against the United States for its treatment of American Negroes? Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yes. Please. I think you're right in my chair. The audience will have to be quiet. <laughs> uh, yes, the, as I pointed out when I was in, during my traveling, that nations look, African nations and Asian nations and Latin American nations look very hypocritical when they stand up in the United Nations condemning the racist practices of South Africa and that which is practiced by Portugal and Angola and saying nothing in the UN about the racist practices uh, that are, that are uh, manifest every day against Negroes in this society. Even in South Africa, those Africans uh, aren't faced with bayonets and aren't faced with police dogs. I, I would be not a man. If I was in a position to bring it in front of the United Nations and didn't do so, I wouldn't be a man. Malcolm, do you intend to lead the charge uh, in the United Nations? Well, I, I find that to say you're going to lead something creates a lot of hostility, division, jealousy, and envy. Uh, I hope to, to work with 
any group of leaders or any group of organizations to do whatever is necessary to see that this problem is brought before the United Nations. Have you had any commitment from any nations in Africa to support you in this move? I would rather not say at this time, but one thing I found in my travels, all of them look at, upon us as their long-lost brother. You realize the implication is that you have had such commitments when you say... This is your interpretation of what I said. Uh, 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 one thing that I found in all of my travels was that uh, all of the Africans, not only the Africans, but the Asians and the Muslims, look upon us as their long-lost brothers. And America had actually tricked many of them uh, into uh, a hands-off policy by giving them the impression that she was honestly trying to do something to solve the problem. My argument over there was designed to prove that it is impossible for the United States government to solve the race problem. It's impossible. Malcolm, on your trip abroad, you said you sensed a feeling of great brotherhood and that conceivably you would be working toward integration in this country now. At least this is what you're reported to have said. Have you any comment on it? I don't think that I ever uh, mentioned anything about working toward integration. They haven't even got integration right here in New York City. You have worse integration problems in the North than they have in the South. So if it doesn't work, in, if, if you can't bring about integration in New York City, as international, cosmopolitan, up-to-date as it's supposed to be, you will never get integration anywhere else in the country. Are you prepared to work with some of the leaders of the other civil rights organizations? Certainly. Certainly. We will work with any uh, groups, organizations, or leaders in any way, as long as it's genuinely designed to get results. Does your new beard have any religious significance? No, not particularly, but I do think that you find black people uh, in America as they strive to throw off the shackles of, of uh, mental colonialism will also probably reflect a, a, an effort to, show, to, to uh, throw off the shackles of uh, cultural colonialism. And they may begin to reflect desires of their own with standards of their own. Uh, Malcolm. A more controversial remarks was uh, a call for black people to get rifles and form rifle clubs sometime back. Do you still favor that uh, for uh, self-defense? I, I don't see why that should be controversial. I think that if white people found themselves the victim of the same kind of brutality that black people in this country face, and they saw that the government was either unwilling or unable to protect them, that the intelligence on the part of the whites would make them get some rifles and shotguns and protect themselves. Now, Negroes are developing some kind of intellectual maturity too. And they can see that having waited upon the government to protect them has been a, a wait that has been uh, in vain. So uh, any of them who live in areas where the government is not able to do its job, then we do have to get together and do a job of protecting ourselves. I want to thank Brother Jesse, Jesse Gray, for the invitation to come here this afternoon and participate in this rally, which I believe is for the good of the community, the good, the good of the black community. And anything that's good for the black community, the white man should realize it is good for his community. Uh, Jesse Gray is one of the key persons in the Harlem area primarily because he's dealing with one of the key problems, the problem of housing. It doesn't make any difference what else you have if you don't have some place to rest your head, you're in bad shape. Here in Harlem, the reason we say that housing is such a, a key problem, when you live in a poor neighborhood, 
you're living in an area where you have to have poor schools. When you have poor schools, you have poor teachers. When you have poor teachers, you get a poor education. And when you get a poor education, you, you are uh, destined to be a, a poor man and a poor woman the rest of your life. Poor education, you can only work on a poor paying job. And that poor paying job enables you to live again in a poor neighborhood. So it's a very vicious cycle. And usually these uh, uh, bad housing conditions result from the fact, as Mr. Gray has pointed out, of absentee landlords, people who are rich and live downtown and let you and I live up here in the shack. Actually, it's a form of 20th century slavery. And what you and I have to let the man know is we are peaceful people. We are loving people. We love everybody who loves us. But we don't love anybody who doesn't love us. We're nonviolent with people who are nonviolent with us. We, but we are not nonviolent with anyone who is violent with us. Once those intentions are made known, we can get to the nitty gritty of the problem. We can get to the core of the problem. We can get to the root of the problem. And then we can correct the problem. There's been a lot of talk uh, said recently can, when, uh, because I was supposed to have said something about Negroes should buy rifles. White people have been buying rifles all their lives. No commotion. I see an editorial right here in a paper they call the Journal America. One that we happen to have a suit for, suit against for around six million dollars for saying the wrong thing a few years ago. It says that uh, we're, some, we're supposed to be organizing some kind of Negroes to arm themselves with rifles and shotguns for self-defense. America is based upon the right of people to organize for self-defense. This is in the Constitution of the United States. You read it for yourself. Brother James had the Constitution, he brought the Constitution in with him. I don't know why. Uh, what, what is that now? What article is that? The Second Amendment to the Constitution uh, spells out the right of people under this particular governmental system to have arms to defend themselves. All of you know I'm not an integrationist. I'm a believer in the Honorable Elijah and follower of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. I'm still a Muslim. My religion is Islam. I run into some obstacles in the nation of Islam and I feel that I can best serve the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's purpose and program and carry into uh, existence what I feel, I understand, concerning his objectives better on the outside than I can on the inside. And, and now that I have the independence of action, it's my intention to work with everybody or against everybody, whatever the case may be, to try and get some kind of immediate solution to the problems that are confronting our people. I still believe the best thing for us to do is go back home to Africa. But while we're getting ready to go back, we've got to eat now, we've got to sleep now, we have to have some clothes now, our children have to go to school and we need some place to work. So whatever kind of action program can be devised to get us the things that are ours by right, then I'm for that kind of action no matter what the action is. 
I don't think when a man is being criminally treated that some criminal has the right to tell that man what tactics to use to get the criminal off his back. When a criminal starts misusing me, I am going to use whatever necessary to get that criminal off my back. And the injustice that has been inflicted upon Negroes in this country by Uncle Sam is criminal. Don't blame a cracker in Georgia for your injustices. The government is responsible for the injustices. The government can bring these injustices to heart. Many, many, many other black leaders, they Absolutely. never went so far as to say some of the things he did. No, no. But he really educated right. not just black people, but it opened the eyes and hearts of people who who for the first time started to see America for what America was. Right. Mm. And as I understand it, Yuri, he uh, sent you postcards from yeah. various places that he was traveling? Oh, yes. From, Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think from, he sent, I think, uh, 11 from nine different countries. Uh, I mean, Kenya, Nigeria, Egypt. I mean. Did you save them? <laughs> What? Do oh, yes. Oh, yes. Fantastic. I'll keep them forever and pass right. them down to my grands. Right. Yes. Yes. And um, um, Malcolm had such a way with people, I think because he was so genuine. Yes, and he was. That's why he was our people black just really loved Malcolm. Yes. And I don't think there's any other leader, national leader, that had that kind of love bestowed on them. No. I, I remember um, I was living in New York City oh. um, when the funeral took place, but I was still, you know, semi-conscious. I was just kind of waking up, um, still in my 20s. And uh, I remember the funeral in Harlem, and it was huge. The streets were packed. And, uh, of course, Ozzie Davis gave the uh, right. the eulogy, oh, which was beautiful. If you, if, viewers, if you haven't uh, heard that, you should look it up. You should Google that. Yes. <laughs> just oh, the, yes. Ozzie Davis' eulogy to Malcolm X was just, just incredible. Yes, and people still recite it. Oh, yes. They've memorized yes. it. It's yes. just, yes. it'll live. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, uh, uh, when he came back from Mecca also, um, one of the problems I have uh, with a lot of our more narrow nationalist uh, brothers and sisters is that they tend to quote Malcolm, early Malcolm. Oh, yes. And they refuse to acknowledge changed Malcolm. And it's almost as bad as, uh, as portraying him as a hustler and a pimp. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, and he changed from that. He changed from being a narrow nationalist. He became an internationalist. And almost no sooner than he became an internationalist, they assassinated him. Right. Because that's when it met, became a threat. Right. With so many progressive Africans and United States knew that Malcolm made an impact in Africa. Oh, so yes. that so Malcolm became a threat to the U.S. Oh, absolutely. But uh, one of the people who uh, affected Malcolm in a very good way was, were the Algerians. Uh, this Algerian went up to Malcolm and said, I'm an Algerian, and I, our people have born, were born here. We lived it, But we look white to some people. North Africans, right. Yeah, North mm -hmm. Africans. Yeah, yeah. And so he said, so 
how does that figure with you? What do you see us as? But then, uh, uh, but and Malcolm listened very carefully, and then he said, "Yes, you are as African as any other African who is darker." And he said, "I'm glad you came and told me that yourself." He said, "There are things that." I have to learn and change, and so that was Mal that was a good example. Mm -hmm. Malcolm did change right. in many ways. Even, he was always growing and developing yes. and changing. And even some things he said, he he even was sorry for. And that was Yuri Kochiyama speaking on Malcolm X. As an undergraduate at San Francisco State University, I enrolled in a class about Malcolm X during my sophomore year. By way of having family friends of the Kochiyama family, I had the honor to interview Yuri and bring her into the fold of the class. I even had the privilege to see the letters that Malcolm had sent to Yuri during his travels. It was unbelievable to read the depth and candidness that Malcolm had relayed to Yuri in those letters. Although Yuri can be found on the cover of Life magazine cradling Malcolm's head in the moments following his assassination, many people who document Malcolm's life failed to include Yuri as a comrade in arms. Nevertheless, her impact on the reality of political struggles across racial lines in New York City and abroad during the mid-1960s until her elder years have left a lasting legacy. When I first started podcasting with the Uncle Nacho Show, one of the first interviews was with artists working on the Yuri and Malcolm mural project in Harlem. I dedicate this episode to those artists for keeping Yuri and Malcolm's spirit alive in their native Harlem neighborhood. The last clips we'll hear from Malcolm continue with his political views as a burgeoning internationalist before his untimely death. He speaks on the needs for the civil rights movement to become recognized as a human rights movement and much more. So let's tune back in now. Well, for the past 10 years, the struggle in America has been confined to what has been projected to the public as a civil rights struggle. And uh, in that context, it has remained a domestic problem. It has remained within the jurisdiction of the United States. And it has, and as such, it has been impossible for the Afro-Americans or American Negroes to try and enlist the support of other dark-skinned uh, people who are being oppressed the world over in, in that struggle. And the difference now uh, in the direction that the uh, struggle is taking from that, from the direction that the struggle has been going in in the past, there are many uh, of our people who are thinking more deeply and more broadly and are beginning to see the importance of lifting it uh, out of the national context or out of the domestic context or beyond the jurisdiction of the United States government. And the only way this can be done is by internationalizing the problem and, and putting it uh, at a level where it can be taken into the United Nations and then all of the other independent nations on this earth can involve themselves in our struggle and support us. And uh, the only way by this, uh, which this can be done, instead of it being called civil rights in the future, we're going to have to label it a human rights struggle or the struggle for human rights. And as such, we can then take it into the United Nations uh, through the avenues that have been set up by the United Nations uh, Commission on Human Rights. Uh, we can take the, our problem before the United Nations in the same uh, manner that the problem 
of South Africa, Angola, Mozambique, Hungary, the Arab refugee problem. It, it becomes a world problem. It also makes a difference in the leadership. Those who have been posing as leaders of our people uh, in America in the past, won't, they can pose on this local stage where Uncle Sam is the master of the show and can prop them up and make them look good or make them look better than they actually are by giving them token gains and building them up uh, an image. But when, you st when they step onto the international stage or the world stage, then Uncle Sam can't prop them up anymore. And their ability or lack of ability becomes exposed. And if they can lead us forward, they remain leaders. But if they can't, then they have to step aside and more qualified and bona fide leaders step up from the masses of our people and then we get more, uh, we get faster progress, we get more results. The uh, Afro-American or American Negro intellectual uh, perhaps uh, per permitted himself to be used in a way that wasn't really beneficial to the overall uh, Afro-American struggle. But I think today that these, I think today these uh, intellectuals have begun to uh, undertake a new appraisal of the problem, uh, looking at it as it actually is, and are beginning to see it more in the international context and the relation that it has with the African uh, struggle. And the African intellectual is beginning to look at the problem uh, in the African context and see that what might be good in one country uh, in order for it to be used in another country has to be rearranged. You take African socialism. Many of the a African intellectuals that have analyzed the uh, approach of socialism are beginning to see where the African has to use a form of socialism that's, uh, uh, that fits into the African context, whereas uh, the form that is used in a European country might be good for that particular European country. It doesn't fit as well into the African context. So I think the African intellectual is making that contribution and he's making it well. The organization of Afro-American unity sees the only hope uh, for the black man in America uh, in a strong Africa. And, and the necessity of the Afro-American becoming uh, inseparably linked with the uh, overall program that's, that's existing on the African continent. The two problems must, go, must be solved together and the two forces must go forward together. And so the organization of Afro-American unity has a program to link the Afro-Americans with the Africans and the Africans with the Afro-Americans. When I say Afro-Americans, I mean those throughout the entire Western Hemisphere. This is our only hope. Our hope is in a strong Africa. And when Africa is strong, our position in America will be one of respect. But if Africa is weak, we will never be in a position of respect in America. I, they, they used to have a saying that one doesn't have a Chinaman's chance. But they don't say that anymore. They used that expression back when China was weak. But now mm -hmm. since uh, Mao Zedong has been successful in making China a strong country, uh, uh, the Chinese have more chance than anybody else. So this saying has become outdated. Well, just as it took a strong China to give a Chinese person respect wherever that Chinese person is found on this earth, uh, when we get a strong Africa, uh, the person of African origin or African ancestry will be respected any place on this earth, even in America. But he will not be respected in America until Africa is strong just as the Chinaman wasn't respected abroad until China became strong. Most people, when we say Afro-American, uh, they think only of the Negroes in the United States. But they don't realize that two-thirds of Brazil uh, are, consists of people of African blood, which means they're also Afro-American because Brazil is in South America. And in all of these, uh, many of these countries in South America and Central America, 
and even in Canada. Uh, they are heavily populated with people whose ancestors came from Africa. So when you total up the number of Afro-Americans, real Afro-Americans, uh, in the Western Hemisphere, there are perhaps a hundred million. And if these people ever unite among themselves, not only is it necessary for the Afro-Americans in the United States to be organized, but, uh, but it's also necessary for the Afro-Americans in the Caribbean or the, the Afro-Cubans, uh, the Afro-Brazilians. It's, it's necessary for all of them to be organized. And then once they are organized in each place, we have to organize among ourselves so that the Afro-American in the United States will be uh, working uh, in conjunction in a coordinated program with those who are in Cuba and those in Brazil and those in Venezuela and those throughout the Caribbean, in Haiti, and in the West Indian Islands. And in this way, we actually get strength. And it's not an accident that there's no organization existing in the Western Hemisphere that's designed toward that end. It would be, the, one of the, it would be a direct threat to imperialism as it really exists, and, and to colonialism as it exists in the West. And one of the things that's going to help to bring this about is, the, is again, is the independence of Africa. And one of the only reasons in the... Uh, that we in the West have never organized, we have hated our image and our African image. And because Africa has been in the hands of people who have created an image of Africa that's negative and hateful. And uh, it has been hateful to us. We haven't wanted to identify with it. But now that Africa is getting independent and in a position to create its own image and it's a positive image, uh, those of us in the West look at the African image and see how positive it is. We begin to identify with it. We become proud of, of Africa and we, we become proud of our African blood, our African heritage. And this is what is beginning to make the Africans in the Western Hemisphere today develop more race pride. And as, as this race pride develops, then it has the tendency to make us want to unite together and work together. And your Western imperialists and colonialists uh, consider this to be a grave threat, more threat than uh, communism or Marxism or socialism or anything else. The Africanism is what they consider to be the real threat. And that concludes Volume 5 of Audio Evidence. Thanks for tuning in, and stay tuned for the next volume.